0: Friends, colleagues, and coping couples, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And uh, we've got a bit of a special episode this time out. Uh, Earlier this year, we released an episode where I took the reins and it was uh, just myself. Today, we've got a really cool episode because Drake's in charge. He's the man Mm -hmm. for the episode. Ain't that right, Drake? that's right <laughs> <laughs> don't worry though we've given him excellent support he's got great guests uh, Dr. Ashley Randall and uh, her graduate student Kai Klein from Arizona State University uh, they'll be on to talk a little bit about their work and what makes their lab uh, so unique and so special and uh, yeah I'm really excited to hear what you've uh, what you've got out of them Drake
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah it should, it should be a good episode so enjoy listening and we'll have Kyle sign us off at the end of the episode as well welcome back to brain Buzz podcast i'm your host drake and we are currently out without kyle today so it's just me uh, and our lovely guests so today we have dr ashley randall and Ki- and kai klein uh, and they're visiting us from uh arizona state university and they are a part of the couples coping with stress lab uh, headed by dr ashley randall so welcome to the podcast
1: Thank you so much for having us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to talking about your work. So, um, Ashley, uh, let's just kind of start off. Like, what are we going to be talking about? What's the work that you do within your lab?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you can imagine two concepts that may or may not be related, and that's relationships and stress. So if you sense my sarcasm, um, <laughs> one of the things that we study in the lab is really how couples of um, variety of dimensions cope with different contexts of stress in their relationship.
2: Okay, amazing. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap going on there. And so what specific work are we going to be talking about today? What are we going to be learning about stress and relationships?
1: Yes, so one of the things that we're going to be learning about um, is thinking about stress from a relational or a dyadic perspective. So I think a lot of the times when we ask people, are you stressed or do you feel stressed? We're mostly inclined to give an individual response, meaning, you know, I'm my heart's racing or I, you know, have racing thoughts. And we're not necessarily considering how our stress can affect our romantic partners or conversely, how our romantic partner's stress can impact us.
2: Right. Yeah. And and it's interesting because we just talked on the previous episode about stress. So this is kind of nice that we're talking more about stress, but how it impacts couples. Uh, so so how do we you know, how do you define stress within your work, specifically within couples?
1: Excellent question. So one of the things that I've done um, with my colleague, Guy Bodeman, is actually redefine stress in the context of close relationships. So moving from that individual perspective that we, you know, traditionally consider, which I was just mentioning, um, we've redefined stress on three dimensions. So one being the locus of the stress. So where does the stress originate? And what I mean by that is that we all experience different stressors and some happen outside of our relationship and kai's work is going to in particular talk about some of those experiences and then also the stress that happens inside our relationship so if i'm having um, a bad day at work or i'm having um, a negative experience due to a marginalized status that i may hold those are stressors that are outside our relationship, whereas if my partner has annoying habits, um, I like to use the example, hypothetically, of course, that um, <laughs> if your partner doesn't close the cabinets in the kitchen, um, yeah. that may be, an, yes, it's, it's totally hypothetical, <laughs> um, that that may be an internal stressor because that's something that's, you know, frustrating with inside your relationship. So that's one dimension. Um, The other two dimensions are, are these macro stressors or are they relatively minor stressors? So when you're thinking of macro stressors, these potentially are um, diagnoses of chronic illnesses uh, and or unemployment or, you know, more the macro things where the more minor stressors are those that are really the everyday hassles that we deal with. And then, you know, from a measurement standpoint, we look at whether or not these stressors happen within the past week. So acute stressors or are they actually long term and chronic?
2: Right interesting yeah so so there's a lot of different ways that you look at stress then because i mean there's a huge differences right between uh you know these macro level these more like life orienting stressors Mm -hmm. if if that would be the appropriate way of saying it uh versus you know those daily hassles the things that you know you think of as you know your day-to-day stressors the things that really bother you in the moment um so you know how do Um, I guess the question is, how do couples kind of interact with these? Is it more of a, I'm thinking of uh, stress as being, you know, individual, it's an individual stress, (laughs) but how you carry that across to your partner, is that how you're looking at it? Or is it more relationship stress? Like those, you know, when you're talking about locus of stress, those internal uh, relational stressors.
1: Yeah, excellent question. So predominantly, our lab looks at how these external stressors, so stressors that happen outside the relationship, can impact how we experience stress inside of our relationship. And so there's, you know, pretty um, robust literature that supports um, concepts that certainly don't originate within our lab, however, within the field of stress crossover and stress spillover. Mm -hmm. And really what these mean is that do areas and contexts of stress that we experience outside of our relationship individually affect our partner and, and start to slowly erode our relationship and the interactions with our partner. And so if you think about it, we, you know, Gottman has talked about upwards of 93% of our communication is nonverbal. So even if we're coming home and we're sighing or we're not necessarily wanting to interact with our partner, mm-hmm. the biggest thing is that one cannot not communicate. So you are communicating uh-huh. something to your partner. And it's, it's really important how partners tease apart those stressful experiences. And Kai's done some work um, along with some others in the lab about actually analyzing some of those nu- nuanced dynamics. So maybe Kai can um, jump in about that.
2: I yeah. Like. Yeah. That'd be great. Kai, give us your perspective. I don't want you to feel like you just have to jump
3: in at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the lab, we do, we do a lot of what Dr. Randall was saying with examining the, the external stressors and then the coping mechanisms. Um, so I think I kind of want to jump in on one of the projects that I worked on. Um, um, Dr. Randall, do you think DCDS would be a good one to bring in?
1: Yes, that would be great. And we're, we're only talking in code words so that yeah, we know which project we're talking about.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was hoping we'd get to talk about this one. So we did a project um, with some other colleagues and it's dyadic coping and daily stress. So that's the DCDS there for you. Um, and what this project did was it examined how couples report their coping behaviors um in response to these stressors and it was a baseline survey and then we also did a seven day daily diary portion which is where we got to examine a whole bunch of different factors um and kind of the highlights before, before you go on kai can you explain what a base just just for for our viewers what a baseline
2: and you know a daily diary looks like Yeah, of course.
3: So the baseline survey is going to be a survey that's taken one time by the participants. So in this case, it was taken by both both partners. Um, And then the daily diaries are going to be seven-day consecutive shorter surveys that are assessing for the same concepts over those seven days, if that makes sense.
2: Mm-hmm. And with those daily diaries, I, I know I, I don't know if we've used the term that much within our podcast or we've talked about it, but uh, it's not necessarily a, a participant just writing all their thoughts and feelings down in a, di- like a like
3: they would in a diary, right? No, so I guess the name is a bit deceiving. So it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a, a preset survey um, with preset questions that, that they're answering on an online platform um, for those seven days. Right. And, and you're sending these through text. Is that correct, sir? So it's an online platform called Qualtrics. It's a survey system mm-hmm. um, and they get reminders through text messages actually to complete this. And then they okay. go to the link and they complete the survey that way. Okay, cool. So, so now we know how you're doing it. So what, what, what did you, what did you find? Yeah. So one of the, the coolest findings for me was the, the, Importance of kind of that nonverbal communication. So we looked at touch behaviors, uh, which was really interesting. So for this this project, we actually had uh, 96 individuals, so 48 couples, um, and we were looking at their perceptions of their partners' coping. So you know, if I'm in a relationship, I'm reporting on how I think my partner is coping with me, and then how I cope with my my partner. Mm-hmm. And what we saw is those that were perceiving more positive dyadic coping by their partner, they not only had increased relationship satisfaction, but they were also reporting more of these touch behaviors. So specifically, we had more cuddling, uh, more kissing, and more hugging. So it's tying in those, those nonverbal communications with the actual overall dyadic coping. Interesting. Yeah, it's a, I, I've never heard of, uh, you know, the combination
2: of, you know, managing stress leading to nonverbal. Uh, often whenever we talk about support or, or you know coping within couples or when researchers look into that, they're not usually making that bridge. That's really interesting that, you know, this this type of positive dyadic coping is what you used. What is what is yes. positive dyadic coping, I guess, is the question that l- that's leading to this nonverbal uh, communication, like affection and things like that.
3: Sure. So the the scale that we used, um, Dr. Randall was actually a part of. So I'm not sure if maybe she wants to jump in with that.
1: Sure. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, thanks, guys. So great overview, by the way.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so the idea is that if, if we go back and we consider stress as a systemic construct. And so what I mean by that is that moving from the individual to the system or like the dyad of, of two people, Um, is that we need to also think about how their coping resources are also interconnected and jointly linked. And so we um, operate largely out of the framework of the systemic transactional model of dyadic coping, meaning that couples' stress and coping responses are connected. Now, you know, coming from counseling and counseling psychology, we like to think about the positive behaviors that we can do to promote um, individual and relational well-being. So we predominantly looked at, um, you know, the perceptions of positive dyadic coping. And what that means is that what are the ways in which partners can offer support? So they're in, in very similar terms to the social support literature um, is that we can look at offering empathy or an emotion-focused positive dyadic coping to one's partner helping them problem solve. So that's problem Mm -hmm. focused dyadic coping. And then we also have delegated dyadic coping. And what that means is that you don't tell your partner, hey, you're going to help me cope. But rather you ask them, (laughs) you know, here's going to be a stressful day. Is there a possibility that you can pick up dinner tonight? Or do you mind, um, you know, picking up the kids or whatever it may be uh, to help kind of mitigate some of those stressors?
2: Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of different types of positive interactions that you can have or types of coping strategies within the couple that appear to be having, you know, positive effects within you know, your nonverbal, your, your nonverbal uh, affection and things like that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say then a large focus, you know, because we've talked pretty generally thus far um, about stress. And so these, I think um, are what uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Casey Totenhagen at the university of Alabama and I study um, is really moving beyond what we would consider these quote, general or quote common stressors that people experience to really understand some of the um, marginalized stressors that specific couples may experience and individuals within a relationship may experience and that ties nicely into um, Kai's thesis and then also a lot of the work that we've done on understanding sexual and gender minority couples experiences of stress predominantly associated with their marginalized sexual or gender identity.
2: Absolutely. So we're talking, you guys are interested in the external stressors that are m- about marginalization then. So what kind of, it, it, could you give com- a couple of examples? And then, I mean, then also what you're looking at specifically within your work, Kai?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that, that my thesis actually gives a, a pretty clear example of kind of what we're looking at. So um, I think a lot of our field focuses research specifically on like internalized homophobia, for example, that's kind of a term that we see and hear a lot about. So that's the idea that we, or those that experience marginalization for that identity, internalize the negative societal messages that they receive directly and indirectly. Um, So what my thesis was looking at was actually um, kind of a newer term, it's called internalized transphobia, but it's the same basic principle of uh, the the internalized negative messages from society for transgender individuals. Um, so right. what my thesis is examining was associations uh, between gender congruence and sexual satisfaction. So gender congruence is how your physical body aligns with your gender identity. Um, so okay. to make it a little bit more clear, if you identify as a man and you have a physical body that represents a man, you would have high gender congruence. Um, And if you identified as a man and had a body that you felt was not as masculine, you might have low gender congruence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, So the first association that I was interested in was how does that construct relate to sexual satisfaction? So tying in the relational aspect um, of the work that we do in the lab. And then additionally, I also was looking at the internalized transphobia concept and looking at the effects of that concept on the association. Um, So just a little bit of of background, I think, is the transgender identity has been kind of a hot topic uh, politically and socially, and that kind of sparked my interest in what research is out there. And unfortunately, there's very little research on the transgender community, um, and even less so on trans men which is interesting. So I kind of set out to combine some of the work that I've done in the lab with my own personal interests. Um, And we also were looking at um, dyadic coping reports of trans men and kind of looking at how that might even act as a buffer. Um, And just like a super quick snapshot, um, Mm -hmm. what we found is dyadic coping does actually act as that buffer for some of the negative effects of internalized transphobia. And what I mean by that is participants that reported high levels of dyadic coping, that positive dyadic coping, um, it actually decreased the effect of internalized transphobia on the association between their gender congruence and sexual satisfaction.
2: Interesting. And so... What do you think, I mean, I, I love to ask this question. And I think it's important for us to kind of talk about it, is what do you think the implications of that are uh, for that population?
3: Yeah. So there's quite a few actually. So I, I am uh, specifically getting a master's in counseling. So I think a lot about the clinical implications and um, I'm actually working with some transgender clients right now as well. And what I'm seeing is there's just a lack of information on you know, what can we do clinically to help these people that are struggling with their mental health? And I think implications from the data that we've just collected is, you know, the importance of those relational aspects. So unfortunately, internalized transphobia is not something that you can just, you know, wave a magic wand and the person doesn't experience it anymore. Yeah. But if we can help facilitate these healthy relationships, um, whether platonic or romantic like my rela- or like my study was looking at, that's something more tangible that we can work on. You know facilitating um, healthy relationships and, and teaching and showing that you know we can kind of buffer the internalized transphobia aspect that is so salient um, and has such a negative impact on both sexual satisfaction and gender congruence. Absolutely. I think, and I, I think those findings
2: are really interesting in the fact that uh, it, it really does show that if you have a strong or, you know, positive relationship with where there's a lot of positive diet of coping, it can really protect you uh, from having these, you know, really objectively stressful situations with, like with uh, uh, internalized transphobia. Uh, those things are, you know, things that this population has to deal with. And so that's really important that as, as a couple researchers, or relationship researchers, we can say relationships really do help those people or they can help those people dealing with those stressors. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and I
1: think, you know, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead.
2: No, no, actually Absolutely. You, you go ahead.
1: <laughs> I, you know, I was just going to say that, it, you know, it's like speaking off of Kai's point is that if you look at the literature, unfortunately. There's a lot that needs to be done in terms of really understanding one, the experiences of various marginalized individuals and, and certainly in the context of relationships and. And we're just talking about, you know, a a potentially singular identity here, and not necessarily intersecting identities. And then also not only moving the research, but then move or and moving, you know, the the clinical implications forward of how is it that we can help? And that's something that our lab is currently working on: is that how can we start to develop relationship education and almost prevention programs? Because Mm -hmm. although, you know, all of us and in our respective lives would love to eliminate stress completely, (laughs) we know that that's certainly not possible. And so, how is it that we can arm one another? with these coping mechanisms, recognizing that we're, we're truly social beings and, and the relationship that we have with one's partner is um, you know, probably one of the single most important relationships that one has in their lifetime. And, and so it's really important that we try to identify and uh, foster these relationships for positive outcomes.
2: Absolutely. Kai, you talked about the clinical implications for individuals that are really having a hard time with this. Um, do you think that these implications kind of reach further than just the, the population that are, you know, clinically uh, like that are
3: really, really having a hard time versus the people that are kind of like in between? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think absolutely. Because like I had mentioned, I think internalized transphobia is something that's salient within the community. And even if you're not reaching distressing levels clinically, You know, having that support of a romantic relationship, a partner that's supportive and accepting and caring, you know, it certainly can't hurt. And it's going to only facilitate, I think, for the community to just feel as if they're moving in the right direction. If we can find something that kind of combats such a salient issue of internalized transphobia, even if you're not clinically distressed, you know, it's only going to move forward. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a really good point. Is like, and you know,
2: we're we're we hope that this the work that you guys do, and I'm sure it will, will have an impact on everybody, not just those that you're you're working with in in the clinics. Uh, and I think that's that's the really cool implication is that it, it can help everybody that's in a relationship.
1: Absolutely, and Drake, you know, I mean, as you know, right from your work too, is that it's it's challenging sometimes to get the variability with with couples uh, coming in either to the lab or participating in the research studies that have variability in terms of relationship quality or commitment, because, there, you know, if, if you don't like your partner, that's the last thing you're going to do is like, oh, let's sign up for a relationship study and each get $25 um, and tell them <laughs> how, how crappy our interactions are, right? So, yeah. so there's, there's a lot that we need to do together as a field um, to really ensure that our findings and, and the research that we're doing is one, um, you know, one can be replicated into that can be generalizable across all domains, including, um, you know, cross-cultural populations as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Ashley, is, you know, the idea that we have sample, we have the samples that are willing to come in and do the research, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if we're, if we're thinking that, you know, yeah, I think the point is perfect. It's perfect the way that you said it is that, yeah, we're not going to have the worst, worst relationships where people are really don't like each other, uh, but they're still in those relationships. They're less likely to cooperate enough to go to and do this, you know, week study uh, together talking about how, how much they support each other or how, how little they support each other. Um, exactly. yeah. So, so, I mean, this is, that's really cool. So I love the work that you guys are doing in your lab. What, um, what kind of outcomes are we looking at here? Cause I know, I mean, we talk about how stress can impact relationships and it can, and coping can kind of safeguard you. Um, but what kind of things happen when that's not working as efficiently as we like, what are the kind of outcomes that are, we're seeing?
1: Excellent, so um, certainly we are seeing, so for the cross-sectional data, we're seeing higher levels of um, you know, reported stress response. Um, I would say longitudinally, you know, over time, um, some of the work that um, we've done in the lab has certainly shown increases of um, symptoms of depression and anxiety, or conversely, when partners are actually reporting this perceived positive coping, you know, we're seeing a decrease of symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. Um, So those are more like the individual outcomes that we um, look at. And then we also certainly focus on relational constructs, predominantly relationship satisfaction um, and commitment. However, the the satisfaction is a little bit tricky from a measurement perspective in that um, one can be satisfied in the relationship globally however there's a lot of daily variation that i think needs to be accounted for um and so some of our other work that we're doing in the lab um you know kai and, and some of the other um RAs are working on you know looking at uh, momentary coding of how it is that we actually communicate stress over the course of a conversation and what that actually means for the quality of the conversation and so we're trying to expand that work as well
2: uh, It's a really interesting point ashley is that you know you can look at relationship satisfaction as like more of a global uh, variable mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, how happy are you in a relationship uh, that question is very different from as you said, you know These day-to-day or momentary assessments where you're saying when the last time you talked to your partner How happy were you or you know, how can how good of a conversation was that how supportive were they whenever you had something actually stressful happening? That's a very different conversation uh, and very different findings
1: absolutely and so you know where the field really you know and we talk about this often um in the lab because relationships are fun to talk about and so is research (laughs) so um you know we talk about this a lot in that if you're asking people to recall about a stressful conversation and also how your partner helped you cope in that moment assuming that they did positively Mm -hmm. um is that what are you more likely to remember you know are you is it kind of the recency primacy effect is it something that's most salient Because you were feeling really stressed out in a particular context or or disclosing a particular interaction and and they responded positively to that. And so I think that there's a lot that we need to do in the field in terms of unpacking um, you know, how is support communicated, when is support communicated, and what is most salient. And and certainly that's looking at it really, you know, between couples. However, there's Certainly, an increased need to look at the within couple variability and then individual factors as well. You know, if, if I have certain personality characteristics or um, a certain you know, history of, of trauma or experiences, then how am I going to be reacting in that context?
2: Right. Yeah. And that within per, that within couple variability is the, the quite. In, I think that's the most interesting thing. Most interesting thing to you know probably our viewers and most people that that are interested mm-hmm. in relationship research right they're, they're li- probably less worried about what they are compared to others but what's going on within their relationship and what really matters Excellent. within uh the confines of their their relationship uh i think Excellent. that's really I, I love the point that you're talking about you know how individuals positively cope with each other but i'm curious to kind of hear um how do I imagine coping is not always positive within couples. And I think uh, we'd be remiss not to talk about like the, the, you know, the, the, negative side as well, or at least, you know, mention it. So what, what does not good coping look like? Or is there, you know, is there negative dyadic coping?
1: So, so one yes, there's negative dyadic coping. Absolutely, um, we try to focus more on the positives in our lab, and actually, because of the participants that um, you know participate or self-participate in the study, um, they actually report higher levels of positive than negative dyadic coping. Which However, yeah. um, yes, you know that's great. So, for any of the listeners, if you watch any reality television, um, I'm, that's like my side passion and my side research. It's a great way to look at negative dyadic coping, if you will. Okay. Um, yeah so and I won't name, name any shows in case it's <laughs> uh, internationally. Um however you know one can reluctantly cope with their partner. Um and and we look at ambivalent coping and negative coping and and so the idea is that if your partner is, is telling you about a stress that they have and you're half listening or you're rolling your eyes or you're saying, okay, yeah, I've already heard about this or this is something that you were stressed out about last week. Right. Um, right. You, you know, These are really instances of negative dyadic coping. I um, mean, Kai, are you like reflecting on any from kind of some of the videos that you've seen or anything? Oh to- yeah, I was, uh,
3: I was just thinking about that. So I'm currently doing like moment to moment analyzing couples mm-hmm. and I'm doing the nonverbal Um, which is kind of right up my alley. And some of the biggest things are, you know, you're leaning in to talk to your partner and they say something that rubs you the wrong way and you lean back and you cross your arms or you sigh or, you know, they're getting emotional and trying to tell you how they feel and you're looking down at the ground or you kind of lean away from them. So it's, it's a lot of the nonverbal that comes across as that, negative or ambivalent dietic coping mm, that's really interesting i, I
2: really like that I, it's that is what kind of no one really outwardly says negative things i mean if intentionally i guess unless they're trying to be hurtful but i think I, I another example i could think of is like uh splitting your time and your attention just like you said you know maybe looking at phones or like you know yeah. when someone's talking to you about something meaningful
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's not work that we focus on in the lab. However, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the comm um, literature and then certainly in social psychology of looking at the idea of technoference. So when we pick up our cell phone, when we're in the middle of a conversation um, and or our partner picks up our cell phone, you know, their cell phone and uh, looks at their phone or, you know, it really decreases the quality of the interaction that we're having with yeah. uh, that person.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. That's really cool. So, and it it sounds like, I mean, for the most part that maybe the intention's not originally to, you know, be negative or, you know, not support their partner, but it comes across as that whenever, you know, when you're not paying full attention or, you know, you're non-verbally shifting away because they may have said something that you didn't like. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And really, you know, the the premise behind understanding like this whole phenomenon of dyadic coping and teaching the couples, the skills about this is not just, okay, go and be positive and provide your partner empathy or, you know, have your partner tell you that what they can do or, or what you can do to help them. Mm-hmm. It's really understanding that we're all going to be experiencing stressors and we're going to perceive those stressors differently. However, it's having your partner help you discover the underlying reasons as to why those experiences are so stressful and so emotionally arousing for you and so let me give an example of that um is that you know commonly um you know for, for those of us that are in the academy of of experiencing rejection right so whether or not that be um, enormous track changes from a thesis document which i know kai cannot um, you know acknowledge at all um and or you know receiving a journal rejection we, we experience rejection right so we come home and we're telling our partner about this and really on the face validity it's that okay your manuscript was rejected or you have a lot of revisions to do however trying to understand the, the underlying schemas, if you will, of a partner's experiences is really what's important. And so, for example, having that rejection could really elicit um, anger you know, or fear uh, from, from an individual and saying that I'm not good enough and, and worrying about being accepted, for example. Um, and so certainly there's a process of teaching couples how to dive deeper into their emotions, which we call the funnel method um, in the couples coping enhancement training. However, it's helping these couples really uh, understand those those deep and meaningful um, emotions, if you will.
2: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And and, and Ashley, can I get, just get you to do a quick sound bite of defining what face validity is?
1: Absolutely. I was just going to say, like, if you're measuring something um, and you ask, um, you know, how close do you feel to your partner? Is that is that item actually reflective of the construct that you're trying to measure?
2: Right, and that's face validity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, great. No, that's awesome. I just, I, I will... Shift that back into face validity whenever we, uh, whenever I do the editing. Um, perfect, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you guys are the things you guys are saying are great. I really like the content so far, it's been been amazing. So, I mean, moving forward to this, then, so like now, you know, as I kind of pushed us away from the positive coping, and I apologize for that, (laughs) um, it's really interesting to kind of hear that nonverbal feedback and and what's going on with uh, the negative diet of coping. But, uh, Kaya, if I could ask, what does what does positive nonverbal kind of like what do those those positive interactions look like just to kind of you know mirror what you talked about whenever you have these negative interactions
3: yeah so i think the most common one that we take for granted and overlook as a form of positive coping nonverbally is just eye contact right mm-hmm. so your partner is talking about something that's important to them or just in a normal conversation right and you're making that direct eye contact, you're engaged, you're actively listening to them. That's a big one. Another one is physical touch. So uh, your partner's getting emotional, they had a really rough day, and you reach out your hand and you grab their hand. You know, any type of physical touch in that type of setting is a nonverbal way of positively coping.
1: So in one of the things that, you know, Kai is talking about, which I agree completely, is that we have to be mindful that, The constructs that we're studying, or the topic areas that we're studying, are very much heavily rooted in our Western ideology, if you will. Um, So, like the idea of eye contact or physical touch, like we're studying these from our perspectives. However, um, the lab also looks at how couples experience and communicate stress across cultures as well. And so, there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, apart from, you know. North America, um, mm-hmm. that to really understand one one, what are the stressors that these couples and individuals may be experiencing, how is it expressed in the context of their relationship? And then how would we even define some of these nonverbals that um you know Kai was mentioning?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ashley, I, I think that's really interesting. Could you kind of Give a couple differences that you might like see, or if you are aware of any, or either of you are aware of any, you know, different significant differences in either nonverbal or verbal communication that seems to be more positive in different cultures.
3: I don't want to say the wrong culture, but I think it's possibly in Asian cultures or Indian cultures that you don't make eye contact. That's a sign of disrespect. So if you were, you know, potentially showing respect and nonverbal positive coping with a partner, it might look completely opposite of what we see, you know, in the Western world. Right.
1: And I would say in some of the work that we've done, so we actually um, published, I collaborated with two colleagues um, for a book in 2016 on couples coping with stress across um, 13 different nations. And, And we certainly see variations in terms of stress communication. So, um, These are um, across varying cultures. We had countries represented such as um, we had Italy, we had Germany, we had Japan, China, et cetera. And so looking at how much within heterosexual um, or different sex couples, how much women in that context or in various contexts felt that they could communicate stress to their partner and conversely how much their male partner uh, communicated stress to them. So we're seeing differences um, in respect to those.
2: Yeah, that's really, I mean, that's really interesting and, and we'll include links as well uh, to all of these papers that we mentioned. So just that if, if anybody wants to read them or check them out, uh, we'll have links to those at the, you know, whenever you get the episode comes out. Um, Perfect. With that as well, I mean, adding to what Kai was saying and what you're saying, actually, I think, I mean, an example that comes to mind for me specifically is, you know, there's, you know, the peace sign or thumbs up aren't necessarily a cross-cultural nonverbal communicative, uh, you know, language right so Mm -hmm. they 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 vary based on what culture it uh, you're using it in and and that can you know something that you might think is is okay or uh, a positive thing in your culture might not translate as effectively to all cultures
1: correct correct yeah and actually um so some of the um some of those individuals in the lab have actually started to look at uh intercultural couples and so you know, there's a lot of nuances when it's trying to define what isn't or who is part of an intercultural couple and how we're defining culture. And so, mm-hmm. um, again, really exciting areas for future research in terms of defining um, these intersecting identities. How how do they um, connect both within and in between couples?
2: Certainly. And so, I'll get away from that because I know that's not specifically what you guys are working on in, in your lab. But uh, with uh, your work, Kai, and what you're kind of leading towards, I guess. Uh, the next kind of step that we can kind of go towards in the episode would be, you know, what are, what are the findings or what are the studies that were you're planning on running or the findings that you're excited to talk about? Um, if there's any know.
3: more than what you've already discussed,
2: of course. <laughs>
3: yeah. So something that I actually wanted to come back to that I think um, Dr. Randall and I actually talked about yesterday is the initial association that I was looking for was, you know, how gender congruence Um, is associated with sexual satisfaction. And I actually had hypothesized that, you know, the more congruent you feel, so the more that your physical body represents your gender identity, the higher your sexual satisfaction. It's just something that through what little research was already out there um, and just through my own lived experience, that's just kind of the way that it went. However, we actually found the opposite. Um, And through talking it out and kind of... Bringing in the the dyadic coping aspect, you know, this is something that I am hoping to explore further because there's, especially with the the association with the dyadic coping, um, you know, I think that there's a relational aspect there. So maybe when you're in those intimate situations with a partner, your physical body doesn't matter as much, or perhaps in those intimate moments, you're acting in a way that makes you feel more congruent. So that's really the piece that I want to dissect further um, in future research. And I think, again, the implications for that are both on an individual level, but then also a relational level as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really interesting. And for Ashley, I guess, I
2: mean, just for what your lab and what your the work that we've discussed so far, is there um, what are the next steps, I guess, for you? And what are you interested in looking at uh, or what are you currently looking at that you're really excited about, I guess?
1: Yeah, so a couple of different things. So if I um, were to take a step back, you know, we've talked a lot thus far about deliberate processes of coping with stress. And what I mean by that are these are skills or um, at least measurable behaviors that we have, um, specifically dyadic coping. And so that's one aspect that our lab focuses on. And um, one of the things that I'm working on with uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Casey Totenhagen, is developing a... Relationship education slash prevention program for sexual and gender minority couples. Um, fingers mm-hmm. crossed, currently under review. So um, we'll Amazing. hear about that soon. <laughs> um, and that will be actually uh, bringing in community couples to teach them about the different types of stressors that um, they may experience in their relationship and then actually providing them the skill set to um, learn about the dyadic coping skills and practice those in their relationship. So that's an exciting mm-hmm. development. And then the other aspect in our lab that we focus on it are more automatic processes of regulation. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, oftentimes we say, you know, you're making me feel this way or I feel this way because you feel this way. Um, And so these are what we would consider interpersonal emotion systems so that my emotions and my partner's emotions are connected. Right. And so our lab is really trying to understand um, at the micro level. And what I mean by that is, like, really second by second, how our emotions um, either measured from self-reported emotions, stress physiology or even some of the behavioral indicators, how our emotion channels are linked with our partner? And can we actually use this in terms of predicting um, the course of an interaction uh, between partners?
2: Right. Yeah, That's really interesting. I, and I love um, we talked a little bit about this and i think this has kind of been you know the guiding work that that kai's been looking at but you know not looking at heterosexual couples um is kind mm-hmm. of a novel thing like <laughs> so like we we tend to look at just heterosexual couples and and uh and that's kind of what we're looking at within relationship research or at least at the beginning uh and so i i i like that uh that your lab and and kai and everybody included mm-hmm. are, are working at uh you know looking at these non-heterosexual samples?
1: So um, just recently, hot off the press, there's a chapter uh, that my friend and colleague, uh, Natalie Mealy and I did, um, in looking at extending relationship science beyond the binary. And so Mm -hmm. we can link that paper as well, and and that we really need to uh, extend our knowledge base about relationships, um, you know, to diverse samples.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, I kind of want to talk a little bit about that uh, because I think you, you're you're the perfect person to talk to about this is, you know, what are we missing by not looking at uh, non-hetero couples?
1: You know, oftentimes I think um, potentially a, a misconception is that relationship quality or relationship functioning is going to differ um, mm-hmm. if one doesn't. Um, you know, prescribed to a, a heteronormative lens, which is not the case at all. Um, you know, there, we're certainly seeing similarities in relationship functioning and relationship quality. Um, however, the experiences that one has leading up to those relationships can certainly be quite different. And, and I think that complements nicely um, Kai's research in looking at some of these internalized negative feelings that one may have about their identity. Right. Uh, you know, and other aspects too is that we thus far in the conversation at least implicitly have talked about a romantic relationship with two individuals and so we also need to think about what and how do relationships look in terms of polyamorous relationships and what are the benefits um, for engaging in you know multiple social connections um, wow. not something that our lab necessarily focuses on however you know thinking about in that context um, those relationships and then also um, recognizing that, and this kind of reflects on that, um, extending beyond the binary is that we really look at, okay, what's one's gender identity or sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that even though I may identify with a specific gender, I may identify with a specific sexual orientation that may not necessarily be my affilial orientation. Um, and that's, you know, those behaviors that I'm actually engaging in, in the context of a relationship. And Kai, I don't know if there's anything that you wanted to expand upon that, because I know, um, that's also an area of interest for you
3: yeah i mean pretty much just mirroring exactly what you said i think um as we continue to progress as far as allowing people to express their identities and experiment with their identities um in the field that we're in that's something that that has to be looked at and examined because you're not just going to get you know heterosexual cisgender people in your lab in your clinic Um, And just really being informed and knowledgeable about the changes that are occurring and taking steps to, to facilitate better understanding of those groups.
2: Right. I think, uh, I mean, one small point that's kind of important is that, uh, you know, looking at the different stressors that that they experience mm-hmm. in these in these relationships, as you guys are, uh, you know, with internal internalized uh, homophobia and internalized transphobia, I mean, that's one unique stressor that heterosexual couples will not experience necessarily, right? Or the cisgender exactly. heterosexuals, yeah.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, others in terms of family acceptance, um, you know, experiencing um, overt or covert Um, discrimination in in the workplace, you know, it wasn't until recently that even, um, you know, in the U.S. that same-sex marriage was legalized. And so we're at the forefront, I think, of trying to be um, moving the the needle towards being progressive. However, there's certainly a lot that that we all can do in in our research and in our practice to to continue to move that forward.
2: Yeah, you no, know, and I think the work that you you guys are doing is exactly that. So it's it's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So so how about this? Uh, if, do you have any myths or misconceptions that you'd like to talk about?
1: Oh, good question. Um, I think. Well, do you want us to? Do you have a topic area? Because we have a lot of myths and misconceptions.
2: That we know about, but, um. <laughs> I, I don't need to constrict your myths or misconceptions. If you can, okay. uh, if if you can get people on the right track, that's all I care about. <laughs>
1: okay, very, very kind, very kind. Oh, here's one actually that comes up, and I can't take credit for this by any means. Um, is that what do you think the number one stressor is that couples fight about?
2: Ooh, damn, that's a good question. Okay, so uh, just all couples in general, I would say. My, my thought would be finances or um, maybe other relationships. So people that are outside, like friends.
1: Okay. Is that your final answer?
2: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I should know better. <laughs> I'm going to feel bad with it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm going to go with that. Those are my two. I do, I do a softball two answer.
1: Okay, very, very good. Kai, Kai, did you want to participate? <laughs>
3: um, I would have said finances or like in-laws. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. So actually, <laughs> and this is, uh, so I'm going to, um, you know, cite Gottman, um, mm-hmm. virtually, if you will, on the podcast, <laughs> is that the number one thing that couples fight about is actually nothing.
2: Oh, uh, of so course. Like, if you
1: think about, you know, really yeah. like what, what are we arguing about when we're trying to figure out where to go to dinner and, um, you know, what to watch on television and, right. um, whatnot. And, and granted, you know, all things considered is that at the end of the day, we really just want to feel heard from our partners and that yeah. our needs, are being acknowledged and met in some context so that's my right. idea
2: i love that want. i love that it's it's just we the the number one stress is trivial things just i think that's interesting too because uh maybe that's just us kind of calibrating our communication and our support with somebody you know just by bickering and complaining about the way that we're interacting
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, that's a really cool trivia fact. I will use that at every cocktail party I'll go, I go to in the future. Um, I appreciate both of you coming on. I, I think the work that you you guys are doing in your lab actually is is phenomenal. And uh, Thank you so much. And it's, uh, it's really meaningful. So I, I, the implications we talked a lot about today, I think it's great. It's, it's awesome for everybody to think about how, you know, they are interacting within the relationship, uh, how they might be coping dyadically, uh, how they're managing their stress and what stressors are bringing into their relationship, be it little nothingness or financial issues or, you know, other things that are external to that relationship. This is really cool. Um, is there anything that you guys would like to, or we always try and give a, a space for our guests to do shout outs or anything that you want to mention that you think people would be interested in. Uh, the floor is yours. If you don't have anything, that's completely fine too.
1: Very kind. Kai, do you have, I have a couple of things. However, I didn't know if you wanted to mention anything.
3: Awesome. Um, I mean, I think the only thing that I would really say is um, like advocacy efforts as far as recent legislature in the U.S. specifically. Um, So for those listening who maybe don't see the importance of the work that we do and that I do specifically with the transgender community, uh, just recognizing that it's not as progressive as it may seem. And um, just to pay attention to what's going on and help fight for the people that are marginalized.
2: Absolutely. I pre- that's a really good, yeah. really good sentiment. yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and, and and my thing is one um, to thank you for for allowing us the platform, and it's been um, quite a delight to chat with you about these ideas, although um, as Kai knows, I could talk about relationships all day. So super <laughs> fun. Um, and I you know I, I would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge um, all of the amazing research assistants that um, have participated in this um, you know program of research. and so currently, you know Kevin Lau, Lauren Hawker, um, Holly Bennett, Jesse Ivers, Madison, Sarah, et cetera. Um, we've got a lot of great people that are in the lab and so really appreciative of their time and their effort and those that came before them and um, amazing collaborators as well.
2: Absolutely. it's uh, There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of work going on behind the scenes for sure. And it's definitely worth acknowledging.
0: And with that, we'll wrap up another episode. Congratulations, Drake. You did an admirable job without me around to keep you guided, keep you pressing on the uh, important issues. You did a great job.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although you knew that, <laughs> awesome. Well, we, uh, you know, I, I, actually really enjoyed that episode. That's the first time I've got to listen to one as a listener and not as a host, um, or I didn't already kind of know what we might be talking about. So that was really cool. I really enjoyed that, and I hope uh, I hope you did as well. If you've enjoyed the episode, you can leave us a note, uh, leave us a review, leave us a couple likes, stars, whatever they may be, on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Google or Spotify, wherever you found the podcast, leave us a note. Uh, If you've liked this episode, you can find others at bringbuzzpodcast.com, along with all the references and material uh, that we discussed, as well as bios about our guests, how to get in touch with them, and uh, all the usual things that you might find uh, associated with one of our episodes. So uh, with that, we'll say uh, great work break, and uh, we hope you enjoyed listening. Cheers.